In the past three years, we've seen political leaders talk up COVID conspiracies about China. The U.S. has also experienced an uptick in hate crimes against Asian people in the U.S. It's been a really scary time for people of Asian descent. Two Michigan researchers have been trying to find out if anti-Asian sentiment causes any tangible economic harm. This would be different than hate speech or acts of physical aggression, but still damaging to Asian American communities. We wanted to not just say that, of course, business traffic is dropping in the post-pandemic period, but whether or not it was the case that Asian businesses were suffering an additional penalty. You know, aside from the pandemic hit, were they doing even worse? This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Justin Huang is an assistant professor of marketing at Michigan Ross School of Business. He and his colleague, Julia Cunningham, recently completed a study that quantifies the toll anti-Asian sentiment has taken on Asian-American small business. Huang joined us to share their findings. For both he and Cunningham, the issue hits home. This was a question that, of course, Julia Lee Cunningham and myself, as Asian-Americans, we were experiencing kind of some of these stirrings, some uh, kind of negative sentiment towards us. And we wondered whether or not the pattern of very unfortunate attacks that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, if these were just limited to kind of violent expressions or kind of outward uh, expressions of aggression, or whether or not it also happened on a more subtle level through perhaps subtle consumer decision making. And so we decided, oh, well, there exists large consumer mobility data, which is now available to us as researchers, was coming in through the market research firm SafeGraph. Uh, You might know SafeGraph because they provided a lot of the data that allowed us to track, for example, uh, social distancing during the pandemic. Um, But SafeGraph had a great program to share data with academic researchers, and they really empowered us to look at this question at a large scale. Were consumers also avoiding Asian American owned businesses as well? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody in Michigan uh, needs needs to know whether this was a time that was particularly harmful to people, psychologically speaking and physically. I mean, this is the state in the 80s where a young Chinese-American guy named Vincent Chin was killed because of anti-Asian hate in the 80s at a time when White Michigan auto workers were concerned about their jobs and whether advances in the U.S. auto market by Asian companies was something that was threatening their livelihood with just devastating results. But this this idea of quantifying is is something different. Tell us a little bit about how you designed this to find out whether there was a connection between economic downturns and online hate speech. So what we, of course, recognized through this was that all restaurants were hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. You had uh, large-scale lockdowns, you had stay-at-home orders, and this affected all businesses. So really, when we designed our study, we wanted to make sure that we were comparing apples to apples. And of course, we wanted to make, again, that apples to apples comparison. We wanted to look at businesses that were serving similar cuisines, serving them in similar, similar service fashions at the same time, at the same places. So really, this led into our design, which is a a difference in differences. The idea behind it is that we want to compare Asian businesses to Asian businesses pre-post-pandemic, and then, of course, compare non-Asian businesses, non-Asian businesses pre-post-pandemic, and see whether or not there's a difference in those drops. And what we were utilizing was the consumer traffic data. 
So through SafeGraph, we have a lot of data around consumer mobility. Mind you, this isn't individual level trips or anything like that, but aggregated trips. How many people, for example, went to the restaurant down the street and uh, stayed there for a measurable amount of time such that the device was able to, to pick this up? And we wanted to then aggregate this traffic data and then look at differences in traffic over time. Another thing that we looked at here was the differences in traffic for more Trump-supporting areas versus less Trump-supporting areas. And this was specifically driven by the fact that we saw Donald Trump utilizing stigmatizing language, such as Kung Flu, to describe the COVID-19 pandemic. And mm -hmm. Kung Flu is, of course, uh, quite hurtful for a lot of Asian Americans because it ties a very deadly disease, something that we're all struggling with, with aspects of Asian American culture. Justin, did the data also reflect the kind of information that we might get from food delivery services like DoorDash and Grubhub? Yes. Yes, it definitely did. So uh, these delivery drivers, if it were the case that they were, say, always turning off their phone before they enter these locations, then they wouldn't be captured. But I imagine the delivery drivers, like all of us, we have our phone on here constantly. In fact, delivery drivers are probably much more likely even to have their phone on because these deliveries are typically app-enabled. Delivery drivers are typically typically utilizing navigation services in order to get around. So yes, they were definitely reflected in the data. Right. Well, what did you learn about the financial cost on these on these businesses? So what we found was that there was an 18.4% relative drop for Asian restaurants versus non-Asian restaurants in the post-COVID period. And we saw that 18.4% drop. That's, of course, a large one for a lot of livelihoods. That's you know uh, money that needs to be stretched. That's families that are uh, looking at maybe even shutting down the business as a result of this drop in traffic. But we wanted to also translate that into dollar terms. In order to translate that into dollar terms, we performed some back-of-the-envelope calculations. We looked at total restaurant revenue in the U.S. and utilized SafeGraph's own visit data to break that down into visits to Asian restaurants versus non-Asian restaurants, and then performed what's called a counterfactual simulation. So within our model, we said, well, what if there was a world whereby there was no relative avoidance of Asian restaurants in the post-COVID period? So everyone treated Asian restaurants and non-Asian restaurants the same, during the lockdown period, of course, still accounting for the fact that it's lockdown, restaurant traffic is going to drop. And what we found is that the change in visits could be attributed to about a $7.42 billion of uh, lost revenue to these Asian restaurants. So in short, Asian restaurants were disproportionately harmed, and we we're able to quantify that figure. Wow. Was the harm limited to Chinese American businesses? That was something that we, we also studied. And this was actually you know, when we, we looked at this and looked at kind of you know, what questions we wanted to ask within the data, we were motivated actually by patterns in violent attacks and hate that we saw. And actually what we saw in a lot of these violent attacks was not only, of course, misplaced aggression. Of course, you're targeting Asian Americans for you know, perceived retaliation for events that are happening overseas. But also there was the misidentification element. And let me just give you a few examples to illustrate this. Of course, you had already mentioned Vincent Chin. Vincent Chin was a Chinese American, yet he was targeted and perceived to be Japanese American um, and subsequently murdered right here around Detroit. There was uh, Balbir Sodi Singh, who was an Indian Sikh uh, who lived in Arizona post 9-11. And he was attacked because as a, an Indian Sikh, he wore a turban and he was stereotyped as being Arab Muslim and then subsequently killed. Finally, of course, there was Bawi Kung. Uh, Bawi Kung, he and his uh, two boys were shopping in Sam's Club in Midland, Texas, during the early days of the pandemic. And Bawi Kung and his family, they, they come from Myanmar. 
and yet they were still attacked and then perceived to be looking Chinese and therefore you know, responsible for bringing the pandemic into the country, therefore uh, subsequently uh, slashed. Thankfully, uh, Bao Kung and his sons, they survived. But you know, just to, to tie up this story, we see a lot of misidentification. We see that those individuals that are most likely to kind of stereotype Asians as a collective other kind of, you know, consider that Asians should be subject to, in their minds at least, collective blame. The notion that if one person does something wrong, then that's reflective of the whole group. And furthermore, then I could make it right. I can retaliate by committing, unfortunately, acts of violence against these uh, this one individual. Well, this is also kind of tied in with uh, ignorance, right, with lack of exposure, this feeling that Asian Americans, Asians more broadly, are all the same. So that what we really wanted to study then was, well, all right, we see this pattern that's happening in violence attacks. Is this also happening with consumer discrimination as well? You hear a lot of news. Donald Trump has stigmatized uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. He's called it the China virus. He's called Kung Flu. Does that mean that, for example, consumers see Korean American restaurants, Thai, Thai American restaurants? They see these restaurants and they say, well, this seems like an Asian restaurant. And, you know, I associate Asian with the pandemic. Does that mean that we avoid them as well? And what we found was that actually the uh, damage and the spillover to non-Chinese Asian restaurants, your Japanese, your Korean, your Vietnamese, your Thai restaurants, was very uh, similar to that of Chinese American restaurants as well. So in short, uh, the harms were not limited to just Chinese American ones. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Justin, what is the importance in your mind of being able to quantify what's actually happening? I think, you know, when we quantify this, then we can think about, all right, well, when we're making policy decisions, what are the harms around this? And in short, the harms around it are, are very great. A lot of restauranting, a lot of these small businesses, they're the lifeblood of the American economy. They are for a lot of families. This is their lifeline. This is what they've invested years, if not decades, into building. And when those are harmed, that's, that's harm that's being done to Americans, to Americans that are, are here and trying to live the American dream. And I think it really speaks to the responsibility that politicians, that more broadly the media has, in making sure to not create stigma, not create kind of uh, you know racism and these negative sentiments towards domestic minority groups as a result of these events that are going on overseas. And unfortunately, we've seen these happen. Like I mentioned, around uh, anti-Japanese sentiment, around anti-Muslim sentiment, post 9-11 attacks. And now we see uh, anti-Asian sentiment in the post-pandemic period. One of the things that struck me as I was looking over 
what you wrote in the study is that social networks like Twitter and Facebook are cutting their workforce. And in, in many cases, there's reporting that suggests that the kind of positions, one of the kinds of positions that are falling by the wayside, obviously there are many, but that content review is really falling by the wayside during this time. Um, and in some cases, users like Donald Trump are being reinstated on some platforms. What kind of effect do you think that has on the kind of patterns that you noticed in the research? So while uh, the social network kind of aspect of it, while looking at, at Twitter data wasn't something that we directly studied in this, we actually looked at uh, search data on Google, but not Twitter data. More broadly, my research looks at the spread of information online. and. There's a big challenge in studying the spread of information online, and that's whether or not this information has kind of a, a persuasive effect. Does the presence of kind of these extreme voices on social media, does it radicalize individuals? Or is the kind of the discussion that we see on uh, social media a reflection of what a lot of Americans are feeling? And unfortunately, it ends up cutting both ways. Um, so I think definitely there's reason to be very concerned about the cutting of kind of trust and safety and moderation staff on Twitter. We've seen a lot of reports around pandemic-related misinformation, political event-related misinformation that is going on. And when these stories proliferate, that can lead to a lot of damages. It can lead to a lot of individuals being stereotyped. It can lead to individuals being exposed to uh, hate. It can lead to uh, poor policy being made or poor uh, medical decisions being made out of this misinformation. So in short, there's a lot of a lot of reason to be concerned about this. On the other hand, though, I think it's also important to recognize that there is something that's called the Streisand effect by potentially looking to moderate these uh, voices that are occurring online, these discussions that are occurring online, we end up amplifying them in some limited circumstances, right? The fact that, oh, you're, you're told Twitter doesn't want you to hear this. Well, for some that can make that piece of information much more persuasive. There's also some uh, evidence to suggest that maybe if we are banning individuals or silencing voices in more mainstream spaces, then people will crowd into uh, more extremist spaces. They'll form echo chambers whereby they're less exposed to competing views. And as a result of that lesser exposure, that can breed extremism. So I imagine that all these are happening to varying degrees. It's difficult. And of course, the research is still developing on this empirically. What is the best policy? What is the best way to, to manage this? But in short, we're living in a very dynamic time. And like you mentioned, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about this. Yeah. I know that your methodology did not involve first-person interviews. You were dealing with all of this data. Mm -hmm. But what kinds of stories did you hear anecdotally from, from small businesses that that really kind of got your attention that there might be something here that could be that could be quantified. Well, you know, as an Asian American myself, of course, I've been to a number of these Asian American restaurants. I would take the time to speak to a number of these restaurant owners. And across the board, the the message was that they were definitely suffering throughout this. Um, the challenge is, and the reason why we really want to take it to large scale data is that while Asian American businesses were suffering, of course, all businesses were suffering during this period. And when I go and I visit a few restaurants, well, all those restaurants that I tend to visit are very clustered geographically. I live in the Ann Arbor, Detroit area, and you know, it's, it would be very rare that I'm traveling, say, across the country. I'm not seeing restaurants in Kentucky or anything like that. Right. Um, so that, that really spoke to the reason why I wanted to take this to uh, larger scale data and move beyond kind of the individual interviews. Um, that said, I do want to highlight uh, an important study. There was a study that was done over at UCLA 
that interviewed Asian American business owners. But what they found was that a lot of owners not only said that their traffic was dropping, but they were experiencing uh, incidents of kind of stigma, of racism, of hate. In some cases, businesses were vandalized and spray painted with uh, anti-ethnic slurs or um, other kind of like messaging that seemed to blame them for the spread of the pandemic. So of course that that's very disturbing, very, very troubling. Uh, one other anecdote I want to highlight is my wife's family is in the restauranting business. Um, and when you see this traffic declining, it can be very, very difficult to uh, try to pivot, try to do something different. You're locked into oftentimes long-term leases. You have uh, a staff that you're looking to support. And during these times when business is contracting, that means that a lot of difficult decisions need to be made. And unfortunately, as we saw through the larger scale research, this was exacerbated by uh, the stigma around the pandemic, whereby Asian businesses were were uh, overwhelmingly hit, disproportionately hit by the pandemic. Yeah. And like you say, for some families, this is the generational wealth. This is the investment. Mm -hmm. What else have we learned about what was going on during the pandemic? So in addition to what we've found around the avoidance of Asian-owned businesses, there's been other research that's emerging around the uh, economic harms that were created for Asian-Americans in the post-pandemic period. So I want to highlight uh, one study that was done by researchers over at Harvard. They have a preprint slash working paper, and they find that customers on Airbnb tended to avoid hosts with Asian-sounding names in the post-pandemic period. So they were utilizing very similar design to ours, except looking at when people were evaluating posts on Airbnb, did they also tend to avoid those with Asian names? And they found uh, similar avoidance patterns. One last thing that I want to highlight was that there was also an employment study. This is being done uh, based on the current population survey. And they found that Asian Americans in jobs that were requiring face-to-face -face interaction specifically. So jobs that were less likely to be remote, more likely to involve interacting with someone in person. Well, in those jobs, Asian Americans were uh, more likely to suffer unemployment in the post-COVID period. So I think more broadly, this literature is establishing that when you have these large events, these large geopolitical events, in addition to stigma causing uh, overt incidents of hate, it also causes a range of kind of trickle-down economic actions that really, really hurt and blow back to domestic minority groups. Would you say that that what's just been happening in this country I mean, it, the, the problems that we're talking about are anything but new. Asian Americans have been subject to political propaganda speech really since the early days of the United States. But was this an unusual opportunity in terms of looking at what was happening? I think so. I think uh, our ability to utilize large-scale data for it was very rare. Um, if you look back to uh, post 9-11, the most kind of recent uh, you know, non-COVID related example of this, we didn't have this large-scale traffic data. There were tax returns, although getting tax return data is relatively uh, difficult. Um, small business reporting is notoriously a, a bit of a patchwork. Um, and uh, employment information, there were some studies around this that showed that Muslim uh, Americans or those that had names that were um, uh, Arabic sounding were disproportionately impacted and were more likely to become un unemployed post 9-11. Um, but so coming back to your question, though, this this right now is an important time because I think a lot of us are also recognizing the importance of data privacy. And a lot of us are becoming a lot more cognizant and asking our, our lawmakers to regulate the uh, spread and the ability of third party companies to collect this kind of large scale location data. So you can imagine that by the time 
And hopefully we've learned our lessons from this, but by the time the next large incident occurs, perhaps this large scale data wouldn't be available. In a turn of phrase, this could be our one chance to study this. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by Ronia Kabansag. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Ann Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for today's podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Hey, thanks for being here. We'll see you tomorrow. Till then, take care. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.